We are continuing this week in the book of Shoftim. I'm actually hoping that between this Shabbat and next Shabbat, we'll actually be able to close out an entire book. So that'll be fun, except for the subject matter that we're going to have to cover now. Yeah, y'all giggle because you know what's about to go down in this book of Shoftim at the end here. Just as a little reminder of what happened last time we were together, we talked about the final, the final days of Shimshon, of Samson. And Samson was a man whose life, we found out, was surrounded by miracles, yet he allowed himself to be drawn away towards his own fleshly desires. Samson wasn't immune to his own yetzerah or evil inclination, and through this, we saw two things, that none of us are immune to our own enticement of sin. And, but yet, despite our shortcomings, despite his shortcomings, Shimshon ends up in the infamous hall of faith that we see in Hebrews chapter 11. We're never too far gone. There's always a glimmer of hope in every single person's life, a spark of Adonai. So none of this should surprise us because it was already foretold by Adonai himself in Devarim chapter 8, verses 11 through 20. All of this would take place and Israel would end up asking for a king. So that is the process that we see here. Israel has come into the land. Joshua brought them into the land. And through a series of years, about 300, 400 years-ish, we see a whole drama play out where there's a series of judges. Othniel, Ehud, Shamgar, Deborah, Gideon, Tola, Jair, Jephthah, and then Ibzan, Elon, Abdon, and Shimshon. The writer of the book of Judges uses this story of Shimshon as a springboard to now set up the final bookend, or the epilogue, if you will, of the book of Judges. These two stories, we don't know exactly when they take place. We can assume they happen right after the death of Shimshon, but there's some good, uh, good evidence out there that it could have happened in the beginning during the reign of Ibzan as well. So we're not quite sure, but what we do know for sure is this epilogue is going to sum up the entire book of Judges, and it's going to prepare us to go into the following books of First and Second Samuel. Many believe that Samuel is the author, in fact, of Judges, and that he sets it up on purpose this way so that Israel knows and will remember forever why they needed a king and why it was a good thing to have a king. So jumping right in, chapter 17. Now there was a man of the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Micah. And he said to his mother, the 1,100 pieces of silver that were taken from you about which you uttered a curse, which you also repeated in my ears, behold, the silver is with me. I took it. And his mother said, blessed be my son of Adonai. Okay, so... This is such a hard chapter to start off with because it starts a little awkward. Adonai just jumps right in. He's like, here we go. He says, okay, there's a son who steals 1,100 pieces of silver. Just to give you an idea, an average day's wage, even in today's market, is around two pieces, two to five pieces of silver, okay, according to the temple shekel. So this is a very large sum of money. And this son steals it from his mother, and his mother comes around and says, you know what? Curse the person who took that from me. I can't believe they took that from me. And he says, well, mom, I took it. 
So now we're not told why he took it. Maybe he was like, you know, you're getting a little older up in age, Mom. The other day you set down that spoon and you didn't remember where it was, and the silver was just kind of sitting out there, so, you know, I kind of took it and set it aside. We're not told that. I'd like to assume that his best intention was so that his mom would not accidentally misplace or lose the silver. However, as the story progresses, we're going to see... Um, Probably not so much that. He wanted to make sure that if this was an inheritance, he got his fair share. So we're introduced to this man named Micah. The next two chapters are going to be covered about this man and his, uh, his uh, poor decisions in life. Micah, Mikayahu, means who is like God. And it's important that remember how his name is spelled, pronounced because eventually it's going to change in the midst of this story. But his name means who is like God. So he returned the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother. And his mother said, I have wholeheartedly dedicated the silver from my hand to Adonai for my son to make a graven image and a molten image. Now, therefore, I will return it to you. So when he returned the silver to his mother, she took 200 pieces of silver and gave them to the silversmith who then made it into a graven image and a molten image. And then they were kept in the house of Micah. So Micah gives back the 1,100 pieces of silver, only to find out that his mom's sole purpose of collecting that much money was to make some false idols. So he gives it back, and she takes 200 of those shekels, pays the blacksmith to create these idols, and uses the extra 900 to create a hammered idol and a poured molten idol. Now, we know according to rule number two, you're not supposed to make an image. Even if the idea of making that image is to serve God, it's wrong. It's not supposed to happen. Adonai said, don't do this. But we're going to be reminded in just a minute here of why this is all taking place. Because the scripture is going to remind us that in those days, in the time of judges, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. The things they thought they were doing right towards Adonai and the things that they did just because they wanted to be hedonistic in their own approach of life. But they all did what they thought was right. So Micah's mom is doing what she thinks is right in her own eyes. And it's interesting that we look at Micah's name. This is it in the Hebrew. Mika Yehu, who is like God. And I want to point out something very cool when we look in the Hebrew here. So we have his name. And then towards the end here, we have a yod, a hey, and a vav. This is the suffix for God. Micah literally has the name of God in his name. However, after this verse, he doesn't. The writer of the scripture is quick to point out that though the name is still pronounced the same, he has deliberately removed the name of God. So the rabbis drosh out and debate about the understanding of what might be happening here. And the consensus seems to be that they think that up until this point, maybe Micah was trying to keep his mom's money safe for her. But the moment he accepts the graven image and the poured image, then it's not good anymore. It's as if his righteousness is starting to fade. He's not in track with, on track with God. He's not going along with what the Torah would command him to do. We see that he pushes himself further and further away from God, and he will begin to expose himself because of this to the attack of the enemy. 
both physically and spiritually. So verse 5, now the man Micah had a shrine of gods. Okay, so it's, it's, it's ratcheting up. It's getting worse. And he made an ephod. Okay, it's getting even worse. And household idols. So he makes even more idols. So he's not doubling down. He's tripling and quadrupling down. And he consecrated one of his sons to become his priest. Oh, it's getting worse. Because we know from the Bible that there is one group of people who are allowed to be the priests, who are allowed to be Kohenim, and it's they're just the descendants of Levi, and more specifically, the house of Aharon. The descendants of Aharon directly were allowed to be the Kohen working within and the Kohen Hagadol, the great high priest. So he consecrates his son to be priest. Now in those days, there was no king in Israel, and every man did what was right in his own eyes. So he makes these household idols. The, the Hebrew word here would be teraphim. And this is a word that we heard, we've heard before. Remember when Rachel, Rachel and uh, Jacob are fleeing from Laban, and Rachel takes his teraphim, his household idols, and he hides it, and she hides them. This is the same thing. So this man, Micah, has made some extra household items. Idols, excuse me. One thing that I find very interesting is that in those days, there was no king in Israel. This will be, we'll, we'll hear this phrase multiple times today. And every man did what was right in his own eyes. This phrase is a condemnation for the entire state of Israel at the time. Because not only was there no physical king to rule over them, but this means they were also not allowing their God, the creator God, Adonai, to be their king either. And as a result, everyone did what just seemed right in their own eyes. You see, there's two dichotomies of ruling a nation. In our world, in our created world, there are two dichotomies at play. The first one is called a theocracy. It's a system of government in which priests rule in the name of God according to his, God's, statutes. Now, we have yet to really see a full-on theocracy at play because quite often the ways and the rulings and the governments of men get in the way. So the second type of dichotomy we see in the world is the human government. It's a political system by which a country or community is administered and regulated according to human understanding. And we see this played out throughout the entirety of scriptures, especially when we get into the Brit Hadashah scriptures. And we see this dichotomy. We see the kingdom of God versus the kingdom of men. And the kingdom of God is those who simply choose to follow God and obey his commands. And the kingdom of men is the, those who are, I don't think I really need God, and I think I can figure it out kind of on my own. So there's these two dichotomies constantly that we ourselves as human beings find ourselves floating in between constantly. You know, none of us are perfect. You know, sometimes we're in the wrong and sometimes we're in the right. I'd like to hope that in the end, ultimately, we're more right than we are wrong. But I mean, come on, we're all humans. We know how this goes. We all have the same struggles. So God's best ideal for Israel is that they govern themselves by means of a theocracy. By this, I mean following the commands of God and ultimately being ruled by him. And we will see this actually expressed best overall in the millennial reign of our Messiah, Yeshua, who he will reign as a king, and yet he's still God reigning them. 
So we see a beautiful meshing together, which is why Adam and I would say, hey, eventually, would you appoint a king? Because it's not bad that you have a king. But you just need to be waiting for the correct king, the right king, the Messiah king, who will do it all right. So verse 7, now there was a young man from Bethlehem of Judah, of the clan of Judah, who was a Levite. And he sojourned there. Then the man departed from a town from Bethlehem of Judah to show, sojourn wherever he could find a place. And as he journeyed, he arrived to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah. And Micah said to him, where do you come from? And he replied, I am a Levite from Bethlehem of Judah, and I'm traveling to, to stay wherever I may find a place. So we have an unnamed Levite. He will remain unnamed. The only thing we know about him is he's young. And he's a religious man for hire. There's a beauty in getting older. You become a little more wiser, and you become maybe a little less ambitious. You, you become a little more, uh, what, what's the word I'm looking for, more content with your life. So we have a young Levite here who is ambitious. And we're going to see his ambitions play out, and not for the good. So Micah said to him, Stay with me and be a father and a priest to me, and I will give you ten pieces of silver a year and a suit of apparel and your provisions. So the Levite went in, and the Levite was content to stay with the man, and the young man became to him as one of his sons. So Micah consecrated the Levite, and the young man became his priest and lived in the house of Micah. Then Micah said, Now I know that Adonai will be good, will do me good, because seeing that I have a Levite as my priest. So everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes. And we see that Micah, wanting to draw closer to Adonai, is doing what's right in his own eyes instead of finding out what's the prescribed right thing to do. We know that it is the right of the Levitical priesthood to minister before God. So in this, this is not necessarily wrong, but the way it's going about is the wrong way. Because the temple, excuse me, the tabernacle at this time is set up in Shiloh. When they came into the land, that's where the tabernacle came to rest. And it will remain there until the Philistine, during the time of Eli, take, it, take the Ark of the Covenant into, away in battle as spoils of war. And so this Levite is not wrong in that he has the right and the authority to worship before God. But it's interesting that he's consecrated. He's consecrated by a man who is from a totally different tribe. And he's consecrated by a man who is at a lower stature. We never see that in scripture. The correct way it's done is there's always someone of higher stature consecrates and blesses the one in the lower stature. It's the way things work. Moshe consecrated Aharon. That's the way things work. But what strikes me as really interesting is there was already a priesthood that were given instructions. We read that in our Torah portion today. The priesthood was told how they were, to they were to commit themselves to God and how they would portray their lives in front of the nation of Israel. And yet we see Michael's to Micah's total disregard for the things that have already been established. And maybe this is ignorance. That would mean also we see a fault within the Levitical priesthood at the time. Their job was to instruct the people on the ways of God. And Micah didn't know the correct ways of God, I would hope, 
unless he's choosing just to ignore the correct ways of God, then it makes this way worse. So in those days, there was no king in Israel in chapter eight, uh, 19 now. Nope, 18. So in those days, there was no king in Israel. And in those days, the tribe of Dan was seeking an inheritance for itself to settle in. So we've gone from story number one, part A, to story number two, part B. So we see an individual person having some issues here, spiritually. We're now going to see that a whole tribe of people is going to have some issues spiritually. And next week, we're going to find out that the entire nation is going to have some issues spiritually, where they're almost going to eradicate an entire tribe of Israel. So we see the progression taking place here. And that's why this is a perfect epilogue, the summary of the book of Job leading into the time of the kings. So Dan was seeking an inheritance for itself to settle in, for to that day no territory had fallen to them for an inheritance in the midst of the tribe of Israel. Interesting. So the children of Dan sent five men from their clan out of their entire population, men of valor from Zorah and Eshtal, to spy out the land and to explore it. And they said to them, go, explore the land. Now hold on, pause for a second here. Adonai has already given them an allotment of land. In fact, before they bring, they start their conquest, Adonai spoke to Joshua and said, hey, let's get the allotment set first before we start conquering. And you can see here on the map, Dan is right here. We do see the testimony from during the time of Deborah. She chastised the Danites for not coming out to help them in their battle. And she says, hey, you're out on your ships, hiding in your ships out at sea. Because we know that the tribe of Dan was a merchant tribe. And they were ship seafarers. I was going to say ship explorers. <laughs> they were seafarers. And so during the time of Deborah, she says, hey, you're out on, your, uh, out on the sea hiding from what you need to really be done. And we've come to the point now where Dan says, hey, I don't have an allotment in the land. Something has taken place. We're not fully given the, the privilege of knowing and understanding everything. But we know that the Danites, the area that they went into, was predominantly occupied by the Philistine, the Philistines, and the Amorites, two very strong armies. We saw the last time we were together when we talked about Samson. Samson's dealing with the, with the Philistines. It was a very intense type of people. And in fact, later on with Eli, when Eli's the high priest, the Philistines are still going to be a, a big issue for them to push out of the land. So Dan was down here. And now the, the whole uh, false temple is set up in, in Ephraim here. And so Dan now is looking for their allotment. Now God has given them an allotment, and they have chosen to not fully conquer the land. And that's one thing we're going to circle around back to next week as well when we talk about the final moments of the book of Judges. When they came to the hill country of Ephraim, the house of Micah, they lodged there. When they were near the house of Micah, they recognized the voice of the young man, the Levite. So they turned aside there and asked him, who brought you here? What are you doing in this place? What do you have here? And he said to them, thus and thus Michael did for me. He hired me and I became his priest. So they said, please inquire of God, they said, so we may know whether our way that we are going will be successful. And, my, and he replied, go in peace, the priest said to them. The way that you are going has Adonai's approval. 
So we see here a couple things happening. So the Danites, the ones who are scouting the land amongst their brethren, which is kind of messed up. So the brethren have been given allotments of land, and yet the Danites are scouting the land that their brethren have, brethren have already been allotted, and uh, they're looking for a place where they can reestablish. So we, there's a big debate here as to whether the Danites are actually seeking the false gods in Micah's temple, or if they're actually seeking the truth from Adonai, and they want to really know what Adonai wants them to do. And the reason that there's this debate is because we see in, in, in I, the Tree of Life version actually translates it really good, because in this first section, we see it says, please inquire of God. Please inquire of God. For Elohim. So these are the Danites speaking. And the Targum suggests that they are referring to Adonai. However, Rashi suggests that they are making reference to all the idols because this word Elohim, God's plural, lowercase g, is being used. I think I tend to side a little bit with Rashi on this one because when we look at the priest's response, he's going to use a totally different word. He's going to use the the unnameable name of God. And he says, the unnameable name of God, Hashem, Hashem is going to give you the way. You're good to go. And so we see the fact that the scripture states that the Levite invokes the holy name of God, and that would suggest that the Danites are actually referring to the idols. Rashi would later go on even further to explain himself, and he says, the Danites knew that Micah's temple relied on sorcery and divination. And they were not inquiring of Hashem. They wanted it. To the Levite, however, the temple was not a legitimate temple. To him, it was but a means to earn a livelihood. And he responded that the true God would be with them. So if this is true, if Rashi's understanding here and thought process is correct, we have the Danites who don't want anything to do with God. We have a Levite who doesn't believe that the temple that he's actually serving in is the legitimate temple, and yet he's still serving in it for money. They're both wrong, if that's the understanding of Scripture here. They're both in the wrong. And this is why we keep, this is the second time we've heard today, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. They're doing what they think is right. So verse 7, Then the five men left and came to Laish, and saw the people there living securely, like the Zidonians, tranquil and unsuspecting. For there was no humiliation or anything oppressive in the land. Moreover, they were distant from the Zidonians and had no dealings with anybody. So the Zidonians, uh, these people in Laish are divided by a whole, the Lebanon mountain range that's there from the rest of the Zidonians who are north. So it's for whatever reason, they're living by themselves, but they're at peace. Maybe they're like, hey, you know what? This big city living, I've had enough. I'm going to go be a homesteader. They're living on their own, away from everyone else at peace. But this term here, for there was no humiliation or anything oppressive in the land, is really difficult to translate. And the commentators, both within the Christian world as well as the Jewish world, really struggle with what this interpretation is here. But I seem to find a common understanding with the majority of translations. So in the New Living Translation, it says, and since their land lacked nothing, they were prosperous. 
Okay, so it's a great land. And if you go to the, the land where it is there, it's uh, uh, Tel Dan, uh, it's a city. It is a beautiful area, lush, fertile, great looking area. But I think the stone edition captures the ultimate understanding of why Dan sought out this land. The stone edition says there's no issue in the land could cause them embarrassment and there was no heir to the dynasty. You see, the tribe of Dan was looking for a quick and easy fix. With no king to come against them, they would avoid the previous embarrassment of not conquering the land allotted to them by God. We can take these people over easily. I know God's called me to do something that's difficult, but you know what? I want it easy. I want the easy way out. The thing is, is that the easy way is not always God's way. I don't know where the understanding came up, but at some point, it seems to be a common thought process that when you're in the will of God, everything's easy. That's so not true. You know, and it becomes an issue because then it's too easy for us to condemn those who are struggling, who say they're believers. Well, you're not in the will of God. Maybe you just need to repent. Or maybe you shouldn't be such a jerk and show some more compassion. It's not easy peasy, lemon squeezy all the time. Because we don't serve a God of instant gratification. These trials, tribulations, struggles, hardships, they're there for a reason. They make us stronger. They make us last longer. Verse 8, when they came back to their kinsmen at Zorah and Eshtal, their kinsmen asked them, what do you say? And they replied, rise, let us go up against them. For we have seen the land. See, it's very good. This is just like when they sent the spies in. Like, you see the parallels happening here? Adonai saying there's a right way to do things, and then there's a wrong way to do things. We're seeing the wrong way to do things right now. See, it's very good. Yet you're, st yet you're sitting still. Don't be sluggish. Go, enter, possess the land. Man, if they had only done this, if it wasn't only Joshua the first time saying going in and conquer the land. When you get there, you will come to unsuspecting people. The land is spacious. For God has put it in your hand, a place where there is no lack of anything on the earth. So from the Danite clan, from Zorah and Eshtal, 600 men set out, armed with weapons of war, they went up and camped at kirjath Jerim in Judah. Therefore, they called that place Maneadon. To this day, behold, it is west of kirjath Jerim. From there, they passed on to the hill country of Ephraim and came to Micah's house. Then the five men that went to spy out the country of Laish said to their kinsmen, Do you know that in the houses there are an ephod, household idols, a carved image, and a molten image? Now, therefore, consider what you have to do. These five dudes, man, they, uh, they're, they're goading their people into going and taking over a completely peaceful set of people who God never told them to take out. And now he's, they're goading their people once again into violently taking by force things that don't belong to them. So they turned aside there and came to the house of the young Levite at Micah's house. And they asked him about his welfare. Now the 600 men of the children of Dan, armed with their weapons of war, were standing by the entrance of the gate. Imagine the intimidation factor there. 600 men armed to the teeth, ready to go to battle. 
just talking with the Levite. Hey, how you doing, bro? Hey, I'm doing pretty good, guys. What are you up to? Seems a little suspicious. Aren't you guys supposed to be a little uh, south, uh, southwest of me here? I don't know why you're all here right now. Then the five men who had gone to spy out the land went up and entered there. They took the carved image, the ephod, the household idols, and the molten image. While the priest was standing by the entrance of the gate with the 600 men armed with weapons of war, totally distracted. Now after these had gone into Micah's house and taken the carved image, the ephod, the household idols, and the molten image, the priest said to them, what are you doing? They turned around and said, be quiet. Put your hand on your mouth and go with us. And you can be a father to us and a priest. Is it better for you to be the priest of the house of one man or be priest to a tribe and a clan in Israel? So the priest's heart was glad, and he took the ephod. So we see the changing here. So first it's the Danites taking the ephod. Now the, high, the priest, the quote-unquote priest, is now taking it upon himself to take them as well. So he's fully entrenched with this idea. So the priest's heart was glad, and he took the ephod, the household idols, and the carved image, and went along among the people. So they turned and set off and placed the little ones and the cattle and all the goods in front of them. This is something that they had learned. Remember, when we read the Torah and we're talking about the wilderness wanderings, the tribe of Dan was the last one to go. They were the one that was in the back of the pack. Uh, when you read the Hebrew, it talks about that they were the ones who were in charge of findings. And the idea that if someone left something or forgot something, the tribe of Dan was there to pick up that thing and be like, hey, who dropped the spatula? How are you going to make eggs in the morning? We got it for you. They were also the ones who were supposed to be in charge of protecting the Israelites from the rear. So they were the rear guard as well. They take the same tactic and they put their children and their, their flocks and everything ahead of themselves as they leave Micah's household because they're ready for a fight. Remember, they're going to this peaceful area to fight but first, they know that there might be a fight that's about to ensue first with their own countrymen. So when they were at a good distance from Micah's house, the men that were in the houses near Micah's house gathered and caught up with the children of Dan. They called out to the children of Dan, who turned their faces around and said to Micah, what's the matter with you that you have called, out, called them out? Have you taken away my gods, which I made, he said, and the priest, and walked away? What do I have left now? And how then do you say to me, what's the matter with you? You know, if you can take away someone's gods, I think it's pretty safe to say that that's not a god at all. You know, we see that in the Brit Hadashah scriptures as well. You know, but that's part of the issue is that when mankind does what they want in their own eyes, eventually Adonai will give them up to their own desires and they will worship the creation rather than the creator who created the creation. But the children of Dan said to him, don't let your voice be heard among us, lest bitter fellows fall upon you and you lose your life with the lives of your household. Then the children of Dan went on their way, and when Micah saw that they were too strong for him, he turned and went back to his house. So the question remains is, why do we make idols as human beings? I think there's really two main points to why we make idols sometimes as human beings. The first being is our separation from God. You see, when we have lost our consciousness of God's presence in our lives as a result of sin, we tend to want to reconnect. 
our sin separates us from God. Sin causes us to say things like, I don't feel God's presence. It's a lot of feelings. I don't feel like God is leading me today. I don't feel like God told me to do A, B, C, or D. The second reason why we tend to make idols in our lives is we have a desire to reconnect with God. And I think that's what we see here with Micah creating these idols. He wants to reconnect with God. He's doing it the wrong way, but he wants to reconnect with God. He wants to regain that conscious understanding that God is with him. So how do we reconnect? The book of James covers this. In chapter 4, verses 7 through 10, it says, Therefore submit to God, but resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, your sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning, your joy into gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of Adonai, and he shall lift you up. So how do we reconnect? Prayer. We call out to him. We read our Bible. We repent. We turn away from the evil things. We keep the commands, the things that we read in God's word, the things he says to do, the things he says to not do. We do or don't do them. These are the ways we reconnect with God. We don't build idols. Then they took what Micah had made and his priest and came to Laish, to a tranquil and unsuspecting people, and struck them with the edge of the sword. And they burned down the town with fire. There was no deliverer, because it was far from Zidon, and they had no alliance with anyone. It was in the valley near Beth Rehob. Then they built, rebuilt the town and lived in it. So they called the name of the town Dan, after the name of their father, Dan, born to Israel. However, the former name of the town was Laish. I love how Adonai continues to refer to the formal name because this shouldn't have happened. It's, we see the same thing happen with King David and Uriah the Hittite. Every time it mentions Uriah's wife, it always mentions her not as her as David's wife. He says, the wife of Uriah the Hittite, even after Uriah the Hittite has died in battle. The children of Dan set up for themselves the carved image. Jonathan, son of Gershom, son of Manasseh, he and his sons were priests to the tribe of Dan until the day of the exile from the land. So they set up Micah's carved image that he made all the time that the house of God was in Shiloh. This temple will remain standing at least until the time when the ark is captured by the Philistine. Now the city of Dan will be the future resting place of one of the two golden bulls that Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, will set up after the kingdom divides and splits. From this, we learn that sin undealt with today will become an issue in the future. Let's close in the book of Hebrews, or Messianic Jews, chapter 4, verses 7 through 10. It says, Do not neglect our own meetings, as is the habit of some, but encourage one another, and all the more so as you see the day approaching. You see, Micah had made himself and his family into an island. He decided he didn't need to be a part of the rest of the community of God. He made himself an island. He ran away instead of seeking the truth and to do what was right. Choosing to separate himself from the tabernacle in Shiloh, he put him and his family at risk of attack from the enemy. We need each other. 
We are a family, a support system as the body of believers. So when times get tough, we need to run to our spiritual family to ask for prayer, to seek God through his word and be sure to obey what we read. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 10 says, There two are better than one, because they get a good return for their effort. For if they fall, the one will lift up his companion, but oi to the one who falls and has no one to lift him up. Furthermore, if two lie together, then they will be warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though a man might overpower one, two can stand against him. Moreover, a, thresh, a threefold cord cannot be quickly broken. We need each other. We need to not forsake our gathering together. We need to pray for one another, love one another, be compassionate towards one another, help each other out. You know, the concept of Lador Vador from generation to generation doesn't just magically happen. We have to actively seek it out. That means we have the older fellow people reaching down to the younger generation and the younger generation reaching up to help the older generation in times of need. So as we seek God through his word and we obey him, he will show himself strongly amongst us and he will begin to heal our land. Shabbat shalom.